Well, we're continuing on in our study of Acts, and I want to start by asking a question or just to get you to think about something this morning, and that is, what does it take to change your mind or opinion about a person, to have a change of heart towards somebody? You know, if you think about it, once you've kind of made up your mind about a person, uh, what does it take to convince you to have a different opinion about them, whether it's a, a family member, let's say it's a political candidate, a family member, a co-worker, but once you've formed an opinion, once you have a heart or a mindset towards somebody, what does it usually take you to change that mind uh, or to have a different attitude or outlook towards them? For most of us, I think we're pretty stubborn and it takes a lot of convincing for us to to change our opinion, or we need a lot of evidence that someone's changed, or someone's really sorry, or that someone's, uh, that we had it wrong in the first place, maybe. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think most of us really need some serious convincing. Well, here what we're going to do today is look at this group of Jews, this group of Israelites that had an opinion about Jesus Christ and were hostile towards Jesus Christ. They did not have a good opinion of him. And we're going to see in this passage where they have a real change of heart. And we're going to look at why, why it is, that what, what happens that helps them to have this change of heart towards Christ. And so, like I said, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. And so far we talked about the fact that we have these apostles, right? The disciples, Christ died, ascended. He said, hey, I have something I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the earth. But I want you to wait for my Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit arrived, right, in power. And they spoke in tongues, communicated these things about God, the wondrous works of God. And it said that Peter preached this sermon. And so they had originally started with 120 plus 12, so let's say 132. And then that day, there were 3,000 were added after Peter's first sermon. So we see they're being witnesses, and they're spreading it. That's just in Jerusalem so far. We're still in Jerusalem. And so we see that happen. And then if you remember, uh, after that sermon, Luke, the author of Acts, kind of takes a zoom-out approach. We talked about this last week. And he kind of zooms out, and he says... Here's what was going on in the church. Here's what those 3,000 people were up to. Those 3,000 people were spending time together, sharing meals together, practicing the Lord's Supper together. They were, uh, making, they were selling things to help each other financially. They were devoted to learning and applying the apostles' teaching. Uh, and it also says that there were some amazing things that were happening that really caused people to pay attention, and it's, it uses even the word fear. Some people were fearing and had a fear about what was going on. God was working in this really, really powerful, big way. And so that was kind of Luke's zoom out and kind of go like, hey, here's what's going on with the early church. And he says there were people being added to the church daily. Well, now we're going to start in chapter 3, and what's going to happen is Luke kind of zooms back in and he goes, you know how I said that stuff was happening? Now I want to give you some real specific, concrete examples of how the church was operating. What were some amazing things that were happening that made people uh, 
some fearful, some amazed. We've got a crier in there. Um, so what I'd like to do is I would like to go ahead and read. We're going to cover a whole chapter and a little bit today. So we're going to cover chapter 3 and the first four verses of chapter 4. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just go through, read that passage together, and then uh, I will pray for us, and then we'll kind of dive into talking about some of the details from this passage. All right. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, this guy, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, or our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let go of him. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets 
and of the covenant which God had made with our forefathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. This is not like where they laid hands to pray. They laid hands like they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we see the church grow by about 2,000 more. All right, let's pray one more time. There's a lot there, isn't there? All right, here we go. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture. And I ask that you would give us specific, individual clarity uh, and application for our lives. I pray that you would help me to explain it well. And we want to just surrender ourselves to your spirit and your scriptures right now, God. And we do acknowledge, as we sang in that last song, that you are good. And we know that you have good things planned for us, even through the teaching of these scriptures. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So one of our first points that I want to make is I want to just talk about what Jesus can do. But before I get into the details of that, if you've read this story, most all of us have heard this story before, and it may have been a while, but you've probably heard it. Uh, there's a, a kid's song if you grew up in church that say walking and leaping and praising God and about this story. And uh, I think if you've heard it quite a few times, it can begin to lose its power for us as we've heard it and heard it and heard it. But if you just put yourself in this setting, in this situation, I think it really becomes uh, alive and amazing as to what's happening and even what the apostles are doing. So they walk in. And so the temple, there's a big wall around the temple. And it has a bunch of different gates. And some people argue about which gate was the beautiful gate. And some people say there wasn't a beautiful gate. It was just a very beautiful gate that they were talking about. But it's one of the ways you get into these temp the temple courtyard. And they have, like, uh, they have different parts of this temple. It's, it's kind of like would be like a big city block. And so it's the way that you would get in and enter into this big city block, so to speak, where there is the temple itself, the temple proper. And so this guy is hanging out as these worshipers come in. He's hanging out, and it says that someone carries him there to that point. He's a helpless man. Someone carries him there. He's not even able to get there. He's been coming there since he was young. It says, we're going to read later, and it uh, talks about here, for 40 years, that's how this guy gets by. And so he's a crippled beggar is who this man is. And so Peter, walking up to him, and it says here that they kind of locked eyes. Did you, did you catch that? And if you kind of picture that, and if you've uh, had somebody asking you for money before, that's usually the last thing you want to do is lock eyes with them, right? If they're walking up to your car and at a corner, you're kind of, duh, fidget with the stereo or whatever it is. You don't want to lock eyes. And it says that the man was expecting to receive something. And it says Peter looked right at him and said, hey, I don't have any money for you. I mean, that would be, if you were going to look at somebody who was coming up to the car and you look straight at them, 
That's not usually something you'd say like, hey, I don't have any money for you. But he says, I don't have any money for you, but I have something else for you. And so what he does is he then, and if you can picture this, takes the man by the hand and he, and he, he tells him, arise and walk. I mean, Peter is obviously having faith here. Can you imagine going up to a crippled guy? I mean, that could be just like a real showstopper right there. You're like, I don't have any money for you, but what I give you, I give you in the name, and then go, rise and walk. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, not rising, not walking. Uh, this is awkward moment. But they're filled, and, and remember, they said wait for the Holy Spirit because these guys are supposed to be declaring the message, and that's why we're talking about this series, making Jesus known. And so God is working through these men so that they know Jesus is who he says he is. And so we begin to see what Jesus can do. And if you put yourself in that situation, you can begin to see that Jesus can uh, override all circumstances uh, and that he can change and transform a person's life. We'll talk more about that. But he brings healing to the helpless and to the hopeless. And that's what Jesus Christ can do. And we see that. And it's not just applicable for this guy here. This crippled beggar, he, he doesn't just change this man's life, but he can do that same thing for us. And so the reality is that he can bring healing to the helpless and to the hopeless. And if you think about us and our spiritual state, our spiritual state is helpless without Christ, is helpless and is hopeless, isn't it? I mean, that's the, the reality, that that's, what, uh, that's where we, we are in this. And so it says, he does this in the name of Christ. Peter does this, and then if you caught that, he says, hey, it's not our own godliness that did this. This did not come from us. It came and it was accomplished through the name of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that we can just, the, the name of Jesus Christ is a magic wand to carry around and you can get whatever you want. The whole idea there in that culture is that when someone's name or a title was used, it spoke of who they were, their character, their traits, and, and kind of identify it was their identity. And so basically what he's saying is when he says in the name of Christ, he's saying, I'm saying this in the power and the authority, in the identity, the person of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. So I'm, I'm, I'm communicating to you that it's not us, through Christ, you are able to walk. And if you think about, again, for us, we are born, if you want to say this, we're physically born, spiritually dead. None of us has the ability or capabilities in and of ourselves. And just like this man was crippled from birth, and he was hopeless, really. This was, this was he was his destiny was to last, to, to live out his days being carried to the temple to beg, to be a beggar, to not have, any, to be able to provide anything for himself. He couldn't go out and work himself into a good situation. And the same is true for us spiritually. We do not have the ability to make ourselves better spiritually, just like this man did not have the ability to make himself better physically. And as much as we can try hard to be good people, we can work hard, we can be nicer, we can quit doing bad stuff, 
we don't really have the ability to heal ourselves spiritually because we are spiritually helpless in and of ourselves. We are spiritually hopeless in and of ourselves. But the reality is that Jesus Christ can bring healing to us in our hopelessness and in our helplessness. That's one of the first things we see. And so can you see how uh, God is getting these people's attention to change their perspective about who Christ is? He heals this man. They all know has been hanging out at the temple for years. And these, these are Jews that are in the temple. So they're probably people that have been frequenting the temple their whole life. And they know for the past 40 years, we remember this guy when he was 12 years old sitting at this gate. And they see a transformation take place. And let me just say this about that. It says that people started rushing over and they rush, rushed over to the porch that's called Solomon. And usually around there was one of the porches or one of the outside walls was covered. It had these pillars and it was kind of the porch of Solomon. So remember how I said it's like walls around this big city gate? One of those walls was kind of had a, a porched over area. And so they, they, they're all running over to this. And it says that they're amazed by what happened. And, and I mean, I feel like we could preach a whole sermon on this. The reality of a changed or transformed life gets people's attention. Right? More than, hey, let me tell you about this church I go to. Let me tell you about this thing that God did for me. Hey, let me preach to you. Hey, let me slap you over the head with the Ten Commandments. Hey, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. Hey, let me pre re-preach my pastor's sermon. You know what gets people's attention? A transformed life. Someone who's experiencing healing. And so you may think, like, what does this have to do with me? What kind of healing do I need? Or I've already been saved. But the reality is, He can continue to heal us. A lot of us have... Uh, I feel like, how, how is it put in Celebrate Recovery? Uh, hang-ups, hurts, and... Hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Hang a lot of us have those things. We need to be healed of our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups. And He can do that. That's the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And when those kind of things, someone's being healed from their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, it's a great phrase there, people take note. And people begin to go, what's going on here? Even more than if you're just preaching at them. Transformed life makes a difference. Also, he offers forgiveness to the guilty. That's what Christ can do. He can offer forgiveness to the guilty. And if you remember, when this group of people, let me just read 14 and 15, it says, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. And he even talks about Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate, most of the kind of shady on history here, you know, the facts surrounding him are, you know, kind of varied. But most of the Jewish historians that wrote about Pontius Pilate was basically like, he's a, a dirty, rotten traitor or a dirty, rotten guy. He hated the Jews. And, and so basically they're saying, you guys aligned yourself with this, not just traitor. That's probably not a good way to say it, but this corrupt Roman you guys aligned yourself with him and said, hey, look at, and, and he's pointing to the guilt, and you guys crucified or had crucified the very prince of life. And then what does he say? He says here in verses 14 uh, and 15, he talks about, well, actually 19, he says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I know you guys did it in ignorance. Repent and be converted so that your sins can be blotted out. 
that's basically what they would do is take an, like Sharpie out in our way of saying it. We'd Sharpie out somebody's name if they were guilty of something. And so, you know, that file's been redacted. It's no longer uh, seen there anymore. And then he also talks about it in the last verse of chapter 3. He says, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And so he's talking to this group of people here who are legitimately guilty. They, they, there's no question about the fact of are they guilty or not. Maybe they did it in ignorance, but they're guilty. And Christ is able to offer them forgiveness. Christ is able to offer them cleansing. That's what Jesus Christ can do. He can heal us when we're hopeless and helpless. And he can offer us guilty people forgiveness. That's good news. All of a sudden you begin to go, oh, maybe I see why these guys were starting to, to turn around to the idea of Jesus. And then also, what else does he do? What else can he do? He builds his church despite opposition. Here we see they get arrested. We're going to see how the rest of that story unfolds. But it says that they got arrested. These guys are preaching about Christ. But what ends up happening? About 2,000 more people believe and get saved. Despite the religious leaders, the people who you would think would have the clout, the people who you would think would have the power, and then even they call the apostles these uneducated men. So you have these uneducated men talking about Christ. And then you have these big political, uh, religious political leaders over here who really do have the power, but yet they're not able to snuff out the church. And Christ told us that the church would be persecuted. We don't need to be surprised by that. You know, John 16 talks about that. He says, hey, I'm sending you out like, like sheep among the wolves. Be savvy. Be smart. I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be surprised when things start being rough. He, he, he primed them for this. And, and the reality is, as Christians, we are going to suffer persecution. And if we're living for Jesus Christ, we're going to suffer some kind of of persecution or some kind of resistance or some kind of opposition. That's a fact. But it also says, it says it in Matthew 16, he talks about on this rock, on this truth about me being the Messiah, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, can you think of any other stronger, wicked force than the gates of hell? I mean, that's a phrase that kind of like, you know, hey, all the gangbangers, uh, all MS-13 is not going to be able to prevail against it. All, you think of the worst or the baddest of the baddest? Christ says the gates of hell, which would probably make MS-13 look like a bunch of sissies. The gates of hell cannot squash out and will not squash out my church. I find so much hope in that, especially now, because the, the way the world is going, you think, is Christianity going to die out? No. In fact, it grew through persecution. When you look back at church history, it grew. And so we can see that who Christ is, or, or we look at what Christ does, man, he brings healing to the helpless. He offers forgiveness to the guilty. He builds his church despite opposition. This is our Savior, and this is what he does. And, and so as we look at that, we begin to see, wow, 
we really are starting to get a picture painted here of someone with authority, aren't we? I mean, here's someone with some power. Jesus isn't just this meek guy that got beat up and put on a cross or got spit on and just took it. He's powerful, isn't he? And so the reality for us is to, to begin to think about and, and even the grace that he would offer to forgive guilty people responsible for sending him to the cross, that he would offer those people forgiveness. I mean, that's good news. You think about the crummy stuff you've done, and, and he's able to offer forgiveness to these guys. He can certainly offer it to you. That's grace. That's an undeserved gift. And the reality when we think about it, do I really believe that this is my Savior? Do I really believe this stuff about Jesus? Do I really buy into that? How did my life demonstrate that this past week? Maybe where am I kind of like just giving a head nod to this stuff? Like, yeah, he can heal. But not this, not my childhood stuff, man. That stuff, ugh, I don't think I'll ever be free of that. Oh, he can heal. Not this habit I got. Like, good luck. I'm carrying this one to the grave if it looks like everybody else I've known. That's not true. Because this is the truth about Jesus Yesterday, today, and forever. This is who he is. This is what he can do. And then next we see who Jesus is and the, the message that Peter gives. And I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. But who Jesus is. He's the servant of God. In this passage, I would encourage you because we're moving so quickly through this. Go back and reread this chapter today or tomorrow. But as he's preaching, he talks about the God of Abraham Isaac, Jacob, and, he, and in some of your versions it may say son of God, and some of yours it may say servant of God. Son has the idea of carrying the, uh, his character, so it's God's, he, he's carrying God's character. Servant has the idea that he's carrying out the will of God, but he's aligned with God. He says, you guys killed the servant of God, is what he tells them. And that's who, who Christ is. He's a servant of God. He's not a cool guy to put on a t-shirt. He's not a good man who once lived. He's not a historical icon. He's not somebody to just try and attain to live up to. He's God's servant. He's the son of God. Passage calls him the holy one. That idea in holy means that he's righteous. He's approved by God, that he has God's approval. He's perfectly aligned with God's standard. What's God's standard? Pretty good? Perfect. So if he is the Holy One, he's perfectly aligned with God's standard. He's, as the next title gives, he's righteous. He's just. That has the idea that he has been, uh, again, he's approved by God, that he is... Uh, and even in that idea of holy, it means like he's separated from the rest of mankind or people in that he's perfectly holy and righteous. He's been consecrated. He's not just like one of the world. And that's even a saint that says we've been consecrated, which is good news, isn't it? That we've been brought over and given the righteousness of him. He's the prince of life. I was thinking about this this morning. So... Not only could death not conquer him, but he actually conquered death. It says that for, for us now, death 
is swallowed up in victory. I mean, you think about how that's, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. For some reason, I have a big monster in my mind when I picture this. And I, I picture death as like this mini dinky monster that's bad and scary. But then you just picture this like giganticer, meaner, badder monster coming up and swallowing death. It says death is swallowed up in victory. He's the prince of life. They could not take Christ's life away from him. They crucified him. But it says that was according to God's plan that he would suffer like that. It says that he laid down his life. He offered his life. It wasn't taken from him unwillingly. He laid down his life according to the will of God. And he is the prince of life. And that has the idea of the author, the pioneer, the founding one. And I read this and I love it. It says, Jesus blazed the trail to resurrection life and established a new quality of life for everyone who believes in him. Just like the pioneers blaze a trail and they're the first one somewhere, that's how Jesus Christ is for resurrection life, but he cleared that trail for the rest of us that we could experience resurrection life. This is our Savior, and he's preaching. Peter's preaching this message to these guys going, you guys crucified him. Here's who you crucified. You were kind of just wondering if he was a prophet, if he was a good man, if he was sent from Satan. Like You guys had all these different ideas about him, but look at the reality. He just healed this guy that you guys know was hopeless and helpless. He not only healed that guy, but let me just show you who he was by giving you some of his titles. And then he's going to continue to talk about he's the promised one. And so these Jews knew their scripture. And so Peter just kind of, he just kind of comes out of here with like a, a Gatlin gun of forensic evidence, more or less, pointing to the, to the Old Testament scriptures. And he says his sufferings were foretold. So, hey, you're wondering how this Messiah, this Prince of Life could suffer? Like that would maybe be a legitimate question, right? Oh, if he's so awesome, then how could he suffer and die on a cross? That doesn't make sense. Well, the Old Testament prophets had talked about that. Isaiah 53 talks about that. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. That's Peter building on his, that point. He was announced to the Jews through the Old Testament. So these Jews didn't realize it, but they had been having the message of Jesus Christ preached to them. That's why when we talk about the Bible, we say it's a book about Jesus Christ. Because whether they realized it or not, it was all pointing towards Jesus Christ. Our faith centers on Jesus Christ. Moses spoke of him. Moses said, hey, there's going to be other prophets that are going to come along. They're going to tell about this Savior. I'll look at you look up that later. All the prophets, including Samuel, spoke about him. <clears throat> and then in verse 25, it says, He fulfilled the promise given to Abraham. He is the long-awaited promise that the world was waiting for. I want to read that verse really quick here. You are the sons of the prophets. Why is he calling them the sons of the prophets? Who are they? They're a group of what? Jews. He said, like, you guys are the sons of these prophets and of the covenant or the agreement that God had made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So way back in Genesis 12 and 15, God spoke to Abraham, and he said, you know what, Abraham? That's why they call him Father Abraham. He says, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your lineage. 
Your family is going to carry uh, the, the line of the Savior that's going to, to bless the whole world. And I, what Peter's saying is, this is the promise. He's the promised one. He's the one that we've all been waiting for. And so when we talk about who is Christ, he really is the promise the world is waiting for. We talk about Acts here, making Jesus known. And I'll tell you the reality. I've, this, it's been convicting to me as we've gone through this. How serious am I about making Christ known? Because he's what the world needs. He's what our community needs. He's what our nation needs. He's what my family needs. He's what this church needs. He's what this neighborhood needs. The reality is, he's the, the one that people have been waiting for, and we're waiting for for generations, to bring salvation, to bring God's blessing. And so Peter's saying, hey, you know who Jesus is? This is all in that sermon. You can go back and read it. This is what... Peter's nailing him with this. You guys sent this guy to the cross. The servant of God, the holy one, the righteous one, the prince of life, the promised one that all these guys that you guys really know all about were talking about. And so as he, he gives him that reality and says, this is who Christ is. And again, my thought would be, we begin to see, we're going to see what happens here with these attitudes. But he, what Peter's doing is trying to change their opinion of who Christ is. Who did they think he was before? A charlatan, a prophet. A... But Peter's trying to convince them that he's somebody different. And the reality is, I think personally for myself, I, I would even say, I need to continue to learn the reality of who Christ is. Because I have an idea of who Christ is in my head. And you probably have an idea of who Christ is in your head. But I don't think I realize the reality of the supremacy and wonder and power of Jesus Christ that it would even apply to my life. Do I believe this stuff about my life? Do I believe that he is the prince of life when it comes to deadness in my own life? He's, I mean, all this points to the idea, this isn't directly said in there, that he's one with God. So basically he says to these Jews, he's going, hey, you guys think you're all on God's side? Well, here we are in the temple. We're all a bunch of religious people, right? Well, this Jesus that you crucified, he's on the same side as God, and God was on the same side as him. Sorry to tell you, you you've been wrong about Jesus this whole time. Kind of like the old, yeah, you really misjudged this, this book by, by the cover. And so lastly, to talk about what is the right response for us, for them, but also for us when it comes to Christ. And when we have the truth about who Christ is, even from this sermon, when we talk about healing, when we talk about his power, when we talk about his authority, when we talk about that he's the one that the world is waiting for, how do we respond to that? Do we just walk out of here? That's cool, kind of thought that. That lines up with what I thought. I've read Acts 3 before. I get it. How do we genuinely, what's, what goes on in our hearts and in our minds about who Christ is? And the first is just to recognize there is a wrong response to this. There's clearly a wrong response. In 3.23, he says this. 
And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So basically what he's saying is if you don't listen or you ignore, you're, there are going to be some severe consequences. Listen, utterly destroyed. That's what he says. The people who aren't paying attention to the truth about Christ will be utterly destroyed. So to me that says there's a wrong response and that's to just ignore it, to not listen. How many, how often do, I mean, we get, we are good at just kind of zoning things out, aren't we? Not really paying attention. That's what he says. Those who aren't going to listen, that's easy to do, to not hear. He says they will be utterly <coughs> destroyed. Also it says here in, Two, three, you see this group and it says that they were troubled, the, the Sadducees. And I can't go into all the details now just because of time. But they were disturbed. We got a real screamer in there, don't we? Uh, they, there was a resistance to the message of Jesus Christ, that they were disturbed. Now, when we preach the message of Christ, it's going to ruffle feathers. Some people are going to think it's a bunch of hogwash, a bunch of baloney. Some people are going to get agitated. It's going to make some people uncomfortable. The idea here is that they're bothered or troubled by this. And they, they call up the, the guy who's here that they, they haul in is the uh, captain of the temple. He's basically like the chief of the temple police they call in to get these guys uh, and arrested. The Sadducees are this group of people that don't believe in really spiritual, spiritual things. They believe in scriptures, but they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they're going, this does not jive with what I know. And that is something for us, right? It doesn't jive with our experience or we think, well, I can't talk to Christ about these people in front of these people. They don't even believe in Christ. Now, there's, there's a wrong response, and that would be to be worried for us, too, to be worried about how people are going to respond to the message. These guys aren't worried. I'll let you guys come back and look at that. So what is the right response? Repentance and faith. I put those kind of slash there because when he talks about repentance... And you, you read it here in verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When we hear repent, we hear, uh, for us, we probably have different visions in our mind. Repent does not mean fall on your knees and grovel. Repent doesn't mean feel real crummy about yourself. Repent doesn't mean, uh, you know, you have to change that one bad habit. That's not the idea of repent. So when we learn the truth about who Christ is, what it means is to have a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of belief, to have faith in who Christ is. And so as we look at that, and I remember I asked at the beginning, I said, what would it take to change your mind about somebody, to have a different opinion? That's what Peter's asking them to do is he says, I want you guys to change your mind about who Christ is. I want you guys to have a whole different opinion. And he gives them some reasons why they could do that. But I would say for us, the same is true. A right response to the realities of Christ 
Maybe you're thinking, he can't heal my marriage. My marriage is too far gone. He can't, he can't give me freedom from this uh, bitterness that I have. You don't understand what was done to me. Well, then I would ask you to have a change of heart, a change of mind, to repent about what you believe about Jesus. He can't forgive me. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. You don't know what I've done wrong. You don't know the wrong I've been involved with. Repent of that kind of thinking. And when I say repent, I'm not saying get on your knees and grovel. Just what Peter meant here, have a different opinion about Christ and go, I'm going to buy into it. I'm going to buy it for me, that he can cleanse me. Because I believe he can cleanse everybody else because they're not as dirty as I am. But now, I'm going to have a different opinion about this Christ. I'm not going to think I'm the odd man out. I'm going to buy into he actually died and suffered for me to be saved. I'm going to buy into the reality that he can heal my marriage. I'm going to buy into the reality that he can give me an abundant life, that I can have an abundant life through Christ. That's repentance. Not just walking out of here feeling like he got hit over the head with a two-by-four. That's not repentance. It says in Corinthians, it talks about there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. Sometimes there's a sorrow and the sadness, and it will lead us to a different opinion about Christ. But it also says that there's a sorrow that leads to death. And a lot of people get stuck in that thinking it's repentance. And the sorrow that gets stuck into depression, suicide, all these different things. And they're thinking, well, I'm just feeling sorry for the person I am. I just feel like a low-life dirtball. Supposed to be repenting. And they live their life stuck in that. That's not the idea. If there's a sorrow that leads to repentance, what that means is a change in turning to God is what it means. And I know that we all need to continue to repent. I feel like we're all on a constant process of repentance and growing and learning who Christ is more and more and letting that reality sink into our heart. And praise is a right response. What did that guy do? He jumped up and started praising God. Some of the, some of the commentators, the, the Bible scholars that write this like, well, I think that maybe the, you know, they, they got, took a little liberty and got a little carried away when they started writing that he was leaping and praising. It's like, baloney? Yeah. This dude had never walked before. I mean, I, I think it's a miracle just that he could learn to walk in that amount of time. No one, you know, he didn't go through the like crawling, standing up, you see the babies wobbly to the hip swivel thing on the thing as they're holding up, all that kind of stuff. He didn't go through that. Took him by the right hand, it says. He looked up, uh, stood up, his, his legs got strengthened, his joints got strengthened, and he started walking and leaping and praising God. And I'll tell you what, God has done so much for us and for me through Jesus Christ. The only right response would be to be filled with, filled with praise. Kick your water bottle over if you have to. Like, let's throw some stuff around. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, man, we have a lot to be praising God for. Even if life is tough right now, the fact that you can walk cleansed and that a guilty person can walk clean, man, that's some pretty, that would be a right response. That would be worth some leaping and praising God. God is good. And he sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to give us a new, better life now and for eternity. 
And so as we look at this passage, and again, it's a long chapter. There's a lot in here. We just like skim the surface. But the reality is, look what Jesus can do. Are you bought into what Jesus can do in your life? Do you buy into that? Look who Jesus is. He's not just this guy that wore a toga and hung out uh, with 12 guys. He's the prince of life. That's who we serve. That's why we're gathered here, because we believe that he is the prince of life, and he can offer us forgiveness, cleansing, and even a new life to live, an abundant life now. And the realities is that we do have a choice of how we're going to respond to him. Today, tomorrow, and I'm not saying that it should be. I just feel like sometimes we think that we should have this moment where everybody come forward. I'm not talking about that kind of response. I'm talking about something that happens between you and God in your heart. And you begin to go, I need to change my opinion about Christ. I've made him this big. Just a cool guy with a bunch of great teaching that I'm hoping will get me out of hell. He's more than that. And that's what Peter's saying. He's like, Look who this Jesus is. We're to be witnesses of him. And then Peter's going like, here's a showstopper to be a witness of Christ. That's our Savior. He is our Savior. And we're called, he's called, we're called to submit to him as our Lord also. Let's be people that are making Christ known. And I would, I would, just ask, you know, are you embracing the truth about who Jesus Christ is? And we see here, he is one with God. He's seated in heaven. He still brings God's grace and God's healing to us, to a bunch of helpless, hopeless, guilty people. He brings that to us. And that's who Jesus is. Are you recognizing him in your own life as that? One who brings grace and healing and hope and forgiveness. Are you recognizing him as that? Or just somebody who's got a, a, a book of rules that he's going to be judging you by. That's not who Christ is. He is going to judge us one day. But he offers us grace and forgiveness and healing and hope. We have an awesome Savior, guys. We really do. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your son. I thank you as we go through these passages, the, the reality of the Savior that we serve just gets uh, convicting even, Father, for me to, to realize how often I don't live with Him as my Savior and as my Lord. I pray that you would just even through this study help us to more and more buy into that reality, that we would be more and more convinced that we would be people of belief and faith, even as these people had their hearts and minds changed. Father, I know we all have little areas that we need to have tweaked in our hearts and minds about your son. Pray that you would do that in us and that we would realize that he loves us. He gave himself up for us so that we could be secure for eternity and even have hope for this life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.